You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. C'était ma première nuit à Alphaville. Il me semblait déjà qu'une longue suite de siècles l'avait précédé. Pourquoi les gens ont l'air tristes et sombres Vous posez trop de questions, Monsieur Jones. Quelque chose ne tournait pas rond dans la capitale de cette galaxie. Qu'est-ce qu'ils ont fait Ils ont été condamnés. C'est le professeur Von Braun qui a organisé tout ça. Nous ne savons rien. Vous menacez la sécurité de Dalfaville. Je ne trahirai jamais les pays extérieurs. Dès que je suis avec vous, j'ai peur. Vous avez peur de quoi Les hommes de votre espèce n'existeront bientôt plus. Vous allez devenir quelque chose de pire que la mort. Vous allez devenir une légende, monsieur Lemikoshi. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, my co-host, Mr. Mike White. I'm fine, thanks. Don't mention it. And back this week after a uh, long time hanging out somewhere, Cullen Gallagher. Howdy. Thanks for having me back. In our November continues with a look at crime and detective films, this time around with a foreign accent, as we check in on what's the latest with Lemmy Caution. Jean-Luc Godard's 1965 sci-fi philosophical noir Alphaville. Eddie Constantine plays the title character, uh, actually, uh, once again, but in a completely different setting, as a secret agent who goes undercover as a journalist, being sent to Alphaville to find a missing agent, capture or kill a man who used to be known as Dr. Nosferatu and is now known as Dr. Von Braun, and to figure out what's up with this computer known as the Alpha 60 that appears to be running the galaxy. And uh, maybe he'll just destroy that while he's at it, too. At the same time, he crosses paths with the lovely Natasha Von Braun, played by Anna Karina, and uh, brings some poetry and emotion to a world run by the digital overlords of logic. But that's just the surface, of course. And uh, as our guest, Colin, when was the first time you saw Alphaville, and what did you think? I must have seen this when the when Criterion put out the DVD, which was, oh, was it 90, late 90s? early 2000s and uh i think like most people i had seen breathless first and uh i was just totally struck by the imagery of this i i loved the vibe i loved the atmosphere and you know it was all uh you know tied together with this wonderfully zany uh you know crime caper sci-fi story that was like nothing else i had ever seen and you mr white I came to this one a little bit later. Godard and I, we have kind of a, a rocky history together. I'm not a big fan of him, usually. Um, I tend to have gone about seeing his things, I don't know if it's in the wrong order or just with uh, something stuck in my butt or what it is, but I just, uh, yeah, uh, seeing stuff like One Plus One and Parole Fou and Made in the USA, those were all kind of my entree into uh, Godard. 
I didn't see Breathless for a long time, and when I did see it, I was very surprised at how much I liked it, because it's fairly straightforward. He keeps the pretension to a minimum, as much as Godard possibly can, and I um, actually really kind of dig it. But you don't dig Pierre LeFou? I'm not as big a fan as Pierre LeFou as I probably should be. No, I, I can't say that I am. Sorry. I won't hold it against you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As for me, I saw this, it could have been on VHS, but I think it was when Criterion put it on on DVD, so that would have been late 90s. And I saw Godard's stuff mostly in order, so I think that gave me an appreciation, although I do agree with you, Mike, basically after Weekend, I kind of tune out, so about 66, 67, I get kind of tired of him. But the early stuff's good. And this is uh, 65, so this kind of fits right into that sweet spot. I really like it because it uh, has all these noir elements, and it has this science fiction element, and at the same time, he's just shooting it on the streets. There's nothing really crazy with special effects. Basically, the best special effect you get is uh, like a fan in front of a light in front of a series of bed springs from that's all I can really figure out and some microphones that move around. Ooh, creepy. Yeah, we're in the future, baby. This must be like the cheapest looking B-movie ever. Like Sam Katzman would not have been proud of this. (laughs) (laughs) But it's great. I love it. And I I think you're you're totally right. Uh, Shooting on the streets of Paris. When I went back to it this time, uh, you know, it almost felt like a documentary to me. I was struck by just how beautiful it looks. I mean, you're you're off to a good start, anything with Anna Karina in it, but just the cinematography looks terrific. And I actually, you know, saw some of the reasons why Godard was shooting some of it the way that he was. I still don't get the flipping from regular to negative a few times for kind of, you know, uh, random times it feels like like he was kind of getting bored with it but for the most part i thought it looked really nice there's a reason for that i'll get into that later good (laughs) i'll give you i'll at least give you my interpretation of it so let's get into the plot a little bit so after we have these really simple credits um we have this flashing light fills up the whole screen sort of uh close up and uh you're now face to face with alpha 60 and uh, Alpha 60 is uh, talking to you, and he's got a lovely, lovely singing voice. Je vais maintenant vous poser des questions test par mesure de sécurité. I love this voice. This whole, uh, I mean, it's it's a human voice, but it, it definitely doesn't sound human if it were me doing this film i probably would have cut out the breaths that you can hear but i kind of like that there are the breaths at the same time because it feels more organic and we've read several different things as far as the person who is doing this voice had they had a tracheotomy or or had they taught themselves to speak again without the use of a larynx or whatever it was but it uh is really creepy and deep and uh, a little mechanical sounding, but but I like the organic uh, appeal to it. So it's not just like, you know, a Dalek type voice, you know, yelling exterminate or something. It, it definitely has a human presence to it. This is also where we meet. Let me caution. 
and played by the, I have to say, if there's a, a guy whose face has been uh, worn quite a bit, it is Eddie Constantine. This guy, you see every wrinkle in his face. I think he um, rivals Tommy Lee Jones at some point. <laughs> you know what? I kept thinking of uh, this time around that Eddie Constantine reminded me of some sort of fusion of George Raft and Dana Andrews. Hmm, I can see that, yeah. Like he has this like unflappable like personality. It's deadpan doesn't even describe it like almost incapable of emotion yet somehow you like the guy and he is charismatic and you know he, he's got that he's got that something he, he is mr hard-boiled he kind of reminds me of buster keaton mixed with a toad <laughs> oh damn damn that's good so mr buster keaton toad george raft um checks into the hotel under a fake name as a journalist he says that he's with the Figueroa Pravda, which to me says that in this alternate universe of 1965, uh, he writes for a paper that uh, amasses something between uh, Rome and uh, Moscow. <laughs> and he goes under the name Yvon Johnson. <laughs> well, it's weird how they talk about Alphaville. Is it a planet? Is it... Uh, a city because it seems to be you know obviously we're shooting in Paris um, and a little bit of Italy from what I understand and it feels very much like Alphaville is a city and he's driving into it but at the same time other places they're talking about galaxies and how you know he's coming in from this other galaxy and how Alpha 60 is going to take over the galaxy and all these kind of things so it's kind of a weird like nebulous thing as far as if we're in the city of Alphaville or on the planet of Alphaville see i thought he was in the city because or at least a country because he talks about these outer countries so I mm-hmm. get the feeling that there's that going on, but there also seems to be this other galaxies at the same time because there's reference to other galaxies. So it appears that maybe Alphaville is the center of sort of the logic universe and it's uh, exploring out into deep space and taking over other places. I'm thinking that maybe the subtitles that I saw with this weren't necessarily that good because talking about this hotel when he goes to check in he's being led into his room by this uh, very comely looking woman with a uh, trench coat on you know very film noir he's got his trench coat and when they get into the room she immediately goes over to his bedside table and starts looking around and he's like what are you looking for and she's like oh a, a bible and i don't didn't realize until way later in the film and then reading up on it that it's actually a dictionary that she's looking for so i'm like okay and now maybe they're calling a dictionary the bible in this but it just seemed like okay well that doesn't explain later on when they're looking for a particular word in the bible only to find out that it's really a dictionary so i was like well maybe this is a weird translation or it's just being obtuse no it's it's just she calls it a bible because everybody in alphaville calls the dictionary the bible and every hotel instead of having a Bible has a dictionary, but they call it a Bible. See? Mm. Yeah. That works for I, me. I would be, yeah. I'd be much happier if every hotel I went into had a dictionary. Because <laughs> oh, you could man. use one. Yeah. That I could use, and that I'd probably steal. <laughs> <laughs> but once she uh, takes him into the hotel room, we get the feeling that uh, there are these, um, I guess they're seductress. Uh, either androids or robots or humans that are raised just to do that job. 
and she's, I guess, there with uh, Mr. Johnson and going to draw him a bath and all of that stuff. And then this, um, I, I love this fight scene that takes place uh, inside the hotel. It totally comes out of nowhere. I remember the first time I saw that movie, it caught me completely off guard. And the several times I've seen it since then, I, I'm, st- I'm still surprised, even though I know it's coming. I, something about the, you know, the framing doesn't anticipate the dude just appearing out of nowhere. There's, like no, there's no hint that this is coming. Well, it's a really strange setup for the room as far as this circularness, and we get circles throughout this whole film, but just how they keep going around and around, and yeah, you're right, as far as the way that the camera is very stationary outside of the room a lot of times, and then when they pop inside of the the bathroom, it's like, whoa, okay, you know, it was such a big deal that we had, uh, you know, a, a different uh, camera setup <laughs> because so much of it was shot from one angle. The only thing that I love about that fight scene is Godard cuts to outside the window of the hotel where the we see into the bathroom and the fight continues, but all we hear is the music on the soundtrack, not the fight. <laughs> Kind of like you, Colin, I didn't really get that there was another entrance to the room, I guess. And we kind of get that a little bit later on because I don't know if he goes back to the same hotel or if just every hotel has the same layout. But all of them seem to have this kind of circular thing going on to the rooms. And then, yeah, people can kind of come in from not what we know as the front door of this hotel room. I think it's probably the same room, but he's using it as a stand-in for every hotel. I think that right. one of the things that Godard tries to get at in this film is sort of uniformity and follow along and just the idea that every hotel room would be exactly the same no matter where you're at would add to that. And I don't know if the woman is a is a robot. I don't think she's like Pris from Blade Runner, but yeah, she definitely has those kind of Matahari skills going on. So what is she, like a level three seductress? Yep. That's what they say, yeah. Not too good. Or Eddie Constantine, aka Lemmy Caution, can really buffet the advances of these uh, sex ladies. I, th- I think that the- might be it. Yeah. And another thing that we learned, too, is that this is not set in the future, but to my mind, set in sort of an alternate version of 1965. Because in this section, he says that he's a Guadalcanal vet, which, of course, was one of the major Pacific battles of World War II. Yeah, it feels very man in the high castle at times to me, as far as like this is, you know, somebody, something happened differently in the war to bring about this reality that we're in now this whole idea of the you know the elimination it would kind of make sense after a world war that we would want to eliminate any of the kind of negative feelings that are out there that would cause a war so the whole idea of the alpha 60 just you know getting rid of emotions seems to be a really safe alternative to a world where we could have the fights that we had the the battles that we had just a few years prior there was later on in the movie, I think there's reference to um, when Von Braun is run out of Nueva York. I think they say it was in 64, which also it's, you wonder was uh, Anna Karina, had she been born by that point? The, the timeline is definitely a little iffy. Yeah. Very vague on purpose. 
But also, that's another tie-in to World War II and the idea of uh, Dr. Von Braun and Dr. Nosferatu and what I saw as this uh, statement that Godard's making about pre-war and post-war Germany in the same character. And, of course, uh, Von Braun being Werner Von Braun, who is the Nazi rocket scientist who eventually worked for NASA. And yeah, that nice little nod to Nosferatu, and then also talking about how Anna Karina has uh, little teeth like you see in the vampire films that they would show at the Cinematheque. I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of nice. And for a while, I was wondering if she was a vampire, because so much of this movie takes place at nighttime, and then finally I saw her in the day, and I was like, okay, maybe she's not a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) But she's definitely pale, and when she shows up, of course, um, we get this lovely close-up of her and um, Anna Karina's eyes. Oh, you could stare at me all day. Yeah, she is something. She was such a a good muse for Godard. I know they were married at this point, and, and it was kind of a rocky relationship. I think they were divorced the next year, and I'm trying to think if if she was in any of his movies after this one. But uh, yeah, she was uh, really something to look at. Oh yeah, she was definitely in, in Made in USA. I forgot about that. I can't remember if she was in uh, Le Chinois or Weekend, but it feels like after those, she kind of uh, hit the road. So when she meets up with, let me caution, Yvonne Johnson at this time, uh, she keeps reminding him that he's got to go to this um, internal control thing, and he's got to keep, you got to check in. Like if, if you're visiting Alphaville, you got to go check in with sort of the central office, and he's like, hey, all right, all right, you know, I'll get around to it. So they leave uh, the hotel, and here's here's another thing that Godard uses. Um, to sort of play into the science science fiction angle by just implication, like I said, just using words, uh, not necessarily effects or anything like that, where, you know, if you've watched enough French film, you know that the street names are all named after, you know, generals or famous painters or whatever. And it's, um, you know, Heisenberg and Enrico Fermi and all of this stuff in terms of the uh, street names. Now, is it at this point that he goes to see um, Akim Tamarov, or does he go to uh, check in with Alpha 60 at this point? He goes to check in with uh, Akim Tamarov here, yeah. Okay, Henry Dixon. And that's another point. You know, it's funny to go back and look at old articles that were written around the time, and and there's a. a, a couple different interpretations of this, as far as um, Akim Tamarov is, is plays Henri Dixon, and we get that we know that because of the um, note on the back of his uh, photo. Akim Tamarov is just one of those amazing, amazing character actors who, you know, everything from Preston Sturges movies like The Great McGinty and. Uh, the uh, the miracle of Morgan's Creek, you know, he shows up in a uh, touch of evil. He's in Orson Welles' the trial. He's in stuff in the thirties, like high, wide and handsome, just all over the place. He's always gives, you know, a superb performance. Such, such, such presence. Yeah. I really get a feel of the trial in this movie. I, I don't know if it's just because of that, like 
Kafkaesque type thing that's going on, or if it was the cinematography and, and the score or what it was, but I definitely was picking up on that. And then, yeah, having Akeem Tamaroff there was a, a nice way to kind of tie that in. And it was uh, John Polito is who we were talking about Akeem Tamaroff with uh, recently. But um, yeah, so it's funny to look back at these articles because there's one where they say that. Um, Oh, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, th- they say that uh, three agents have already failed. Dick Tracy, Flash Gordon, and Henri Dixon. And uh, so there's that interpretation of that. And then there's another one where Dixon asks how Flash Gordon and... Um, uh, Flash Gordon and Dick Tracy are doing as if he was curious about how the comics were going. So it's like, wow, two vastly different interpretations of one line of dialogue. Yeah. And then at the same time for me, I when I see him in the film, I think to myself all of the um, Orson Welles that he was in. Because he was always a, fam- a favorite of Wells. I mean, Touch of Evil, The Trial, Mr. Cotton, and then, of course, he was in a version of Don Quixote that uh, that Wells was working on. Well, I think The Trial, as um, you mentioned earlier, I think that's you know a good comparison because that's another film that's you know the settings are very much it, they could be the present. It has that same sort of German expressionist black and white cinematography that makes everything familiar just seem a little sinister. And another like dystopian story. Yeah, it's uh, didn't he? I'm trying to remember if he shot that one in Germany or where he. Well, knowing Wells, he probably shot it in ten different countries and <laughs> stitched it all together. <laughs> but yeah, it uh, it definitely has that kind of oddness to everything, and he conveys this kind of almost surrealistic uh, touch to everything, kind of like what Godard is doing in this one. This whole idea of the agent who comes in, checks on the last agent, finds that the last agent has kind of gone off the reservation is definitely something that we've seen quite a few times before. And we will see often again, you know, in a few months, we'll talk about uh, Apocalypse Now. And that's kind of the Scott Glenn character. You know, we, we get this very often as far as these uh, people who uh, come in to uh, examine what's going on and then either become collaborators or who just kind of give up. And it seems like Henri has really given up. And I love this fleabag hotel that he's in where the proprietors are like, wouldn't you hurry up and kill yourself so we can rent your room to somebody else? (laughs) Well, it's not only that, but I don't know if if this was even considered a – I don't even know if this was considered a euphemism for heroin at this time, but one of the guys is in the, like, I guess it's an office or something, and he's got a box of Kellogg's Smacks, which, <laughs> and he's eating them out of the box. Like, he's just handfuls of the cereal, and it just says Smacks on it, right? So I'm thinking to myself, is, is Godard trying to have a joke that, you know, the guy's on Smack or Smacks, you know, heroin? I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, don't, not sure. I mean, he but, he puts a lot of you know signs and symbols throughout these movies. Very possible. One of the things that we learn rather quickly in this world that has been created is it appears that most of the people, um, if not all of them, are being controlled by Alpha Sixty, in which Alpha Sixty, I, I guess, tries to get them to. 
for, for lack of a better term, live in the moment in that uh, there really is no past, there really is no future, there's only the present, and um, don't don't get wrapped up in, in trying to think about what was here before or after, that those things don't exist, and that stuff's kind of verboten. Isn't that what everyone's always trying to tell us to do, though? Live in the I, feel like, I feel like all my friends that are like into uh, you know meditation and yoga are just like, live in the present, man. Yeah, YOLO, man. Come on. Yeah, Carpe diem. Let's just go to Alphaville. We'll be, we'll be so much happier. Exactly. See? There you go. So it's this sort of reductionist kind of thing where uh, everyone who's living there is living under the influence of this computer, which at this point we're introduced to, I, I guess, another version of the computer where it seems like uh, Alpha 60 is kind of holding court for all these people. And this is what I was talking about before in terms of uh, the, the, the fabulous special effects of Alphaville, which to me looks like a fan in front of a light in front of a uh, you know old bed springs or something. It's just this... <laughs> fan that kind of moves a little bit in front of a light and it, I'm like yeah it, I, I guess it's effective um, if you're looking for high grade special effects it is not <laughs> it totally it totally works and I feel like that's part of the charm of the movie is you see you know Godard's like fanboy quality come out because he obviously has great affection for these super low budget you know sci-fi serial movies that he, he you know he must have grown up with and here he gets to make his own version, which is just amplifies that cheapness. And the other aspect in here too, in terms of the philosophy, is this sort of reduction, where um, in, in Anna Karina's character, Natasha von Braun talks about how she doesn't understand the totality of sentences, but she understands certain words. So the idea of okay, well, you can understand a word, which this goes back to that dictionary thing you were talking about, Mike. But you don't know how the words go with each other to create a larger idea. So this seems to be this uh, attack on writing, attack on uh, communication in some way. Yeah, it feels like, uh, well, it's very Orwellian as far as it feels like a lot of words have been eliminated. Uh, Anything to do with emotion and anything to do with, uh, um, you know, being responsive to stuff. I, I love how robotic everyone is um there's that weird scene that's coming up fairly soon where he goes into like a reading room and everybody's just sitting there in the dark which is really strange so uh but nobody seems to care everybody's just waiting for the lights to come back on there's that and then also um he goes with natasha to i guess it's sort of the central um Mm. clearinghouse for alpha 60 where everything takes place and there are the executions, which, oh, yeah. which I love the executions. It's sort of like, uh, um, what's her name? Uh, Esther Williams and Busby Berkeley and uh, uh, <laughs> you know, firing squad all kind of blended together. Yeah, it's an interesting way to die, which I think was the name of a, uh, a spaghetti western at one point. But uh, yeah, it's... Uh, kind of crazy and this is also when we finally get to meet dr von braun um who's played by um howard vernon is that right i kept getting him mixed up with the guy john vernon from uh you know like animal house and other things but yeah um interesting career that guy had and he definitely can um 
can rock a pair of sunglasses. In fact, everybody is wearing very stylish sunglasses in this movie. I was really kind of, uh, really kind of uh, uh, coveting all of their sunglasses in this. <laughs> to go back to something you you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the, with the dictionary and only understanding certain words. Later on, um, Anna Karina starts talking about how words keep disappearing from the dictionary, and she only has vague recollections of those. I know that. I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, is the movie sci-fi or is it actually talking about what's really happening? Because every year words keep disappearing from dictionaries and there's always a list of them. Right. You know, just where do those words go? Are just people forgetting them? I also saw that as sort of the control of the central system. Like, once again, you were talking about Orwell and the idea of the memory hole and, you know, words and ideas and things get expunged from the society and they don't exist anymore. We've gotten rid of them. And they're added. Yeah. Yeah. Or they change the meaning of things. Yeah, like when did when did FTW become for the win? I always thought it was fuck the world. Me too. And I saw a job application uh, the other day, and it said you must have an FTW attitude. And I was like, this is the perfect job for me. Fuck the world. I, <laughs> and then I realized, no, it's it's a for the win attitude. This is the worst job for me. <laughs> I did not apply. Fuck critics. Fuck your review. Even if you like me, fuck you. Fuck your mom. Mom's mama. Fuck the Beastie Boys and the Dalai Lama. Fuck the rainforest. Fuck a forest gump. You probably liked it in the rump. Fuck a shoot pump. Fuck the Rio deal and fuck all the fakes. Fuck all 52 states. Ooh, and fuck you. Oh man. Yeah, I've always wondered that too. I I I still consider FTW as fuck the world, so uh, it is interesting. But then we don't want to get into certain things like uh, CBT. To me, that is not computer-based training. No, no, no. No. No, that's something a dominatrix does for money. Exactly. (laughs) But these executions, I really want to go back to this real quick because uh, I love the execution scene. And basically... um, it is if you have behaved illogically, uh, you're condemned. And the guy, at least one of them, I think there's like two executions that we see. Uh, he he cried when his wife died, and so he's on the he's on the like springboard at the pool, and he starts going on about you know emotion and and all of this, and then they 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 shoot him. And then he falls into the pool, and then sort of these Busby Berkeley-esque um, bathing beauties go over and stab him just to make sure that he's dead. Mm-hmm. It's a great scene. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are worse ways to die. I don't know. <laughs> well, is it the gun that gets you, the stabbing, or the drowning? It, it, it's a combo platter. I mean, it's just so that way nobody feels 100% guilty for their Part, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of like firing squads. Nobody knows who has the live round, right? Right. What does it exactly. say in Meet Me in St. Louis? Uh, three deadly diseases when you only need one, or two deadly diseases. Right. You know, if you have three ways to kill them, why not? That's right. So, also at this time, we find out that, uh, of, of course, uh, Lemmy Caution and it being a sci fi film, of course he drives a Ford Galaxy. Uh, yes very stylish that's right so is that a rented car did it get at the airport when he came into alphaville i was kind of 
I was assuming that when he came in from this other galaxy, he just picked up the car and drove into Alphaville because there's no way you're going to be able to fly into Alphaville. They're they're not just going to let anyone in. That's right. I'm sure it was probably a rental. He probably, you know, OJ probably helped him pick it out. I used to run through airports. Now I fly through them. With new Hertz number one express service, I fly nonstop from my plane to my car. Without <laughs> Just flew through the airport, huh? There you go. Nice. This is the point where he ends up in front of the computer, and he comes to realize that Alpha 60 uh, doesn't understand abstraction. Right. It is It is pure logic. It doesn't understand abstraction. Uh, the job is not why. It just is. And everything is cause and effect, and it needs to be, you know... This is the intelligent, logical world that we've created, and that's just the way it be. Let me caution is very Matthew McConaughey from True Detective, you know, especially when he starts talking about time being in a, a flat line that runs in a circle and stuff. I was just like, wow, he can really layer in some bullshit. I was afraid <laughs> that he was trying to do a Captain Kirk, though, and, you know, start being so illogical that Alpha 60 would blow up, you know, does not compute, does not compute kind of thing. But and he kind of even plants that seed inside of Alpha Sixty by you know saying like oh we'll come back to that later, and I was afraid maybe that was like you know and Alpha Sixty even is like you know a few of my circuits are now working on this project and I was like oh this is kind of like you know Independence Day when they plant that little virus or whatever or when Picard tells the Borg to sleep you know but no unfortunately that that doesn't happen so but it is interesting that he. He does represent, you know, the, there is this whole idea of time that you mentioned before, Robin. He's much more of this man out of time. And I think Godard even uh, said that a little bit as far as uh, he's not necessarily, you know, this is a futuristic type thing, but Lemmy Caution really is a man from the past and represents the past. And that kind of reminds me a little bit of that whole idea of, um, you know, at one point he's reading Chandler, and I was reminded of The Long Goodbye and that whole idea of what Altman w- would do, you know, 10, 12 years later, where Elliot Gould was kind of like this man out of time uh, in Hollywood and, you know, not necessarily keeping up with the trends and everything. And it felt, let me caution, was was very much like that as far as he represented the, the older ideas uh, of maybe of Paris coming into Alphaville. But, um, yeah, the, definitely Alpha 60 didn't want anything to do with him. So at this point, he's able to get away from the computer after the check-in. And this is where you were talking about um, the the whole Bible dictionary thing, because we end up back at the hotel, and it is Natasha and Lemmy Caution. And we get a little bit of tenderness here. But the thing that's funny to me is that for all of the – he seems to be a champion of um, love and emotion and things. He's not a very emotional guy. No, no. He's he's kind of <clears throat> he's kind of cold. Um, and at the same time, this is where we learn that there are words that she doesn't know. Like she, like he says conscience uh, to her, and she doesn't understand what what a conscience is. Yeah, she's definitely struggling over that. And uh, yeah, it, that's where I really was getting a lot of the the Orwell kind of stuff with uh, the way that words were disappearing and just. 
the way that language shapes everything. And, and you know, Godard is always playing with language as far as words, but then also the language of cinema as well. So we've got a couple different meanings going on at the same time when they're talking about how, you know, language is changing. This this scene, uh, Bosley Carruther mentions in his uh, review in the New York Times when the movie came out, he... Uh, I think this is when he began to dislike the movie. He uh, describes Anna Karina as slow-eyed and slow-witted maiden. Uh, From here on, Mr. Caution, or from here on, Godard leads Mr. Caution, the viewer, on a slow and painful tour of a complexly automated community that is devoid of conscience and poetry. One of the things about this scene that I also found uh, being a fan of Godard's earlier work is it almost seems like he's either riffing on or possibly even making fun of his own work. Where it seems like this scene in here is like a shortened version of the scene in Breathless where you have you know Gene Seberg and Jean-Paul Belmondo hanging out in that uh, room for you know a third of the film, if not longer. And they're just sort of having these discussions, and and it it seems that he's kind of doing a version of that here. I think it's I think it's sincere. I, I don't I don't I don't really see it as a parody because he also does that in in contempt, and so many of the films, even after that, have this you know this dialogue aspect. I think some of his movies uh, he even would film he would put a you know the person in front of the camera with a mic with a you know, a little earpiece, and he'd just be speaking to them from a microphone, so you'd only hear one end of the conversation. Yeah, it's interesting how he will f- suddenly shift to just a dead-on, like, almost Warhol POV, you know, like a, a screen test almost kind of thing, where we suddenly just get us looking right at Lamy Caution or right at Anna Karina, and there are a few times in this film where we just get that dead on, where they are just talking straight to us, and it's intimate. Uh, it's slightly off-putting. It's like a mugshot. Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, those direct on uh, close-ups. There were times in this film where I was reminded of uh, Top Secret as well. I guess my mind was was really kind of wandering while I was watching this because I kept thinking of other films, which I know is very typical for Godard, that he's going to be quoting from a lot of stuff. Um, here, you know, quoting from the future, uh, which was definitely making fun of the past. That whole idea of the, uh, the, the scientist's hot daughter that the guy comes in and has to rescue. But in this case, you know, Dr. Flamand is not being coerced by the Nazis. He's definitely a, a collaborator, if not the head of everything. But it was, um, that's definitely one of the movies that I was thinking of while I was watching Alphaville. I kept thinking and, about uh, Desk Set for some reason. Really? Because I'm trying to think of like, compu- like movies where the compu- like a large computer is like the central villain. And ah. that would have been in the mid fifties, and certainly, you know, Kate Hepburn is, is is out to destroy this computer, and it's this competition between, uh, you know, the human mind and all of our emotions and capacities versus this, you know, this system that can just it, it has only answers. And I think they even say that in the movie. You know, there's no questions. There's only answers. That's funny. We're going to be talking about Colossus, the Forbin Project, in a few weeks here, and then Demon Seed uh, in early 2016. So definitely some evil computers that would give uh, Alpha 60 a run for its money. 
Well, speaking of Alpha 60, he ends up back at the building again in front of Alpha 60. And at this point, he starts uh, really taking it to the computer. Um, you know, to hell with your logic and all of this stuff. And by the way, let me uh, let me tell you a riddle. A riddle that'll destroy you from the inside. <laughs> Is it the riddle of steel? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you have to listen to the uh, seven-hour Conan to figure that one out. <laughs> well, I love when um, it's, it's it's a little bit earlier when Anna Karina, or when the thugs show up to abduct Lemmy Caution, they uh, say to her, you know, uh, you know, we'll get him when he doubles over with laughter. Tell him number story number like 384, as if the, there's this list of stories that everybody knows and it's the same thing. And he falls for it and he laughs. It was such a Tarantino moment for me, you know, like that whole idea of the telling of the joke uh, and then the kind of explosive moment. You know, there wasn't a gunshot at that point, but it really reminded me of like the original story of uh, natural born killers. Or I want to say that there's a joke in, um, oh God, it, it may be in a draft of Pulp Fiction, but yeah, he would have, uh, or was it true romance? But he would have those moments where he would have a character telling a joke and then it would usually end in like gunfire or violence. So it was kind of that. You know, the punchline was a literal punchline in this case. Did you guys think it was a good story? Um, I thought it was a better joke than the jokes in Salo, but I didn't <laughs> think it was that funny. Well, you know, can't please them all. How about you, Rob? Do you think it was funny? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Did you double over in laughter? No. Okay. The f- when I watched it a few days ago, I, I, I didn't laugh. When I rewatched it this afternoon, I actually did laugh. Maybe it just gets better with time, or maybe maybe I'm just a sucker for Anna Karina. <laughs> mm-hmm. That helped. I have to say, and this sounds completely piggish, but when there were moments where the movie did kind of slow down to a crawl, I was okay just looking at her for a while and just kind of getting lost in her big eyes. Um, so that helped move things along a little bit. She definitely brings a, a human, you know, I was going to say human face, but I think also a, a human, you know, sense of emotion and, and psychology to Godard's movies, which after they split up, you know, he, it's just nothing but, you know, dialogue and, and philosophy and ideas. But, but somehow in the films with her, there, there is also a little bit more of a human element to them. I can see that completely. Otherwise, it's just a car crash that lasts for a half an hour or more. Or let me caution walking across Europe for an hour in a couple oh, minutes. Oh, God. Yeah, we'll talk about that later on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> so let me caution is in there and eventually breaks out and he shoots his way out of the building. And this is at the same time that Natasha's being brought into the building. And uh, yeah. I don't remember much this is, of this part. And this is where the negative images start happening more and more. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, there had been one or two earlier, but this is where it really gets heavy on the negative image. There's a car chase with sort of, I guess, the security goons, and part of that's a negative. And I think that, uh, for me, the negative kind of seems to coincide with the fact that people forget how to walk. If you notice, they're like holding on to the walls or they're kind of stooped over. They're having trouble. And I think that it has to do with Alpha 60 kind of freaking out 
and that's what's causing the negative image. It's weird around here he starts describing people as mutants, which I thought was interesting because he doesn't really use that word before, but now it seems like he's describing the population of Alphaville as mutants. And, um, of course, it's very, you know, Anna Karina starts acting like the other people of Alphaville, and it's up to Lemmy Caution to kind of rescue her. And, um, you know, not only is he going to kind of teach her the meaning of love, but also, uh, you know, literally, but also kind of uh, bring her out of her stupor that Alpha 60 has uh, put all of the residents of Alphaville into. Around this time, doesn't he also describe that, you know, many of the residents of Alphaville die because of asphyxiation of lack of light. Oh, yeah. Which is almost like sort of like, because earlier you said that, you know, they're like vampires. But, you know, at, at the end, he almost, you know, says they're kind of the opposite. Like, they need that light to survive if they just live in total darkness. It also made me think maybe Alpha 60 is controlling the daytime, you know, how much sunlight they're getting. Right. Yeah, because there's only, like, just a handful of scenes that I can think of that take place in the daytime and i know at least one reviewer pointed out that even during that time you know because lemmy caution is constantly taking photographs and he is the bringer of light via his flash and he uh even in the daytime he still has to use the flash on his camera which is kind of interesting so it's it's still it's never a bright and sunny day the the day that we do see is very overcast and very gray so it's it's not a hundred percent darkness but yeah there's definitely a, a lack of light and the other thing i wanted to say talking about the whole idea of time as the circle and everything there's so much and i talked about the 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 hotel room being circular as well the, it seems like almost every staircase that they go down is a circular staircase especially when they get to the headquarters and everything so many circular staircases and it just feels like so much you know and of course we all know that paris is is very much a wagon wheel very circular city but it feels like so much of this film is dealing with circles and this whole idea of looping back on each other. And there are, you know, the, the way that you're describing the plot, uh, Rob, is reminding me of that as well, as far as like, okay, you know, now we go see the computer, and then this happens, then we go back to the computer, and it just feels like we're kind of traveling in circles as far as how the plot is moving. Did either of you ever get like a Marion Bad vibe from this movie? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I kept thinking about that, just especially with like the corridors like whenever they, oh, yeah. whenever they're walking the hotel, there are these long tracking shots, and they keep turning corners, and it's just like, are they in the same hallway they were before? Like, where the hell are they going? It just all looks the same. It's like deja vu. That is a really weird part too, where they're going through the corridor, and you just hear Alpha Sixty saying, "If a, if the room is occupied or free," and just uh, just this kind of extra layer Occupé. on the soundtrack. Occupé. Yes, libre. Libre. <laughs> so he also is able to track down Dr. Von Braun and he has this conversation with him and he's trying, Von Braun's trying to offer him a deal where he can run something in the galaxy somewhere. And this is the reference you were making to, uh, you know, what what is sort of the place of Alphaville in the larger sense? Is it a planet? Is it a city? What is it? And um, but that doesn't work, and he ends up killing him. Poor Doctor Braun. Yeah, and then he's able to uh, rescue the lovely Natasha, and they drive off, I guess, into the sunset. But it's kind of dark. 
Don't look back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very um, uh, Orpheus-like there with the whole, don't look back, quit, nope, don't do it. So he's definitely gone into the underworld and rescued her from, from uh, the clutches of Hades, her own father. And yeah. Eddie Constantine has taught Anna Karina the meaning of love. Yeah. One of the other things that I wanted to mention in here, like you guys were talking about the image and stuff like that, is to me the ridiculousness of the score. It it seems like it's all needle drops, and it's the most over the top, um, high tension score at times. That and I I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I I love it too because it's so grandiose, considering that the images are so not. They're kind of austere and stripped down. It would make the movie would almost make no sense without not that it makes much sense as it is, but without the without the music, it would just you know, it, it really does give that otherworldly sense to it. It gives this uh, this heightened sense of drama, even though the you know the actors on screen don't act like there's any drama going on. I'm gonna go buy that soundtrack on Amazon as soon as we're done. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that 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 tells you my feeling. Dun, dun, well, this, dun. The guy who did the score, and I don't know if he actually wrote it for the film. I mean, it's credited to Paul Mazzas. Oh, sorry, let me say that again. It's credited to Paul Mizraki, and he had actually done. Well, he did the score to They Do Though, which we mentioned just last week, the Melville film. But he had actually done the score to at least one other Lemmy Caution film, uh, Ladies Man, back in 1962. Which at first I was thinking was Ladies Man, the Jerry Lewis film, and I was really happy. But then, no, it, it, it is another Lemmy Caution film. So I'm almost wondering if it was kind of a recycle from that. Now, that is one Let Me Caution film that I did not track down. Um, but, yeah, I'd be very curious to know if uh, if it was just kind of a play upon what he had done before. Yeah, I, I haven't seen, seen, seen that particular Let Me Caution movie either. It's, it's on my list. Yeah, I want to read some of these Let Me Caution books and see how the character compares. And it's interesting that, you know... Uh, Eddie Constantine, you know, kind of originated that role as far as being the first person to play Lemmy Caution. And it's kind of uh, a coup, I think, that Godard was able to get Constantine to be Lemmy Caution for him. It's kind of like having, you know... um, well, I guess I guess it's kind of like having a uh, one actor play uh, a, a character, maybe like a James Bond, for years and years and years, and forgetting that there were you know five or six actors playing James Bond, but you've got one actor who's playing Bond all through the through time, and then suddenly having them kind of parody themselves in one of the the movies, which, because this is definitely not a typical Lemmy Caution film. I don't, you know, it's funny you say that. Um, To go back to the books, though, for a second, I, I, I'm, I, I read the first one, which is, you know, by Peter Cheney. It's called uh, This Man is Dangerous, and I think it was written in 37 or 38, which is just absolutely extraordinary. It's, uh, he's a British writer, and he's 
doing sort of a parody of the American hard-boiled thing. Um, but whereas, you know, Chandler was very eloquent with language, you know, his, his character was like a knight, you know, Hammett had, you know, was also very concerned about language and he had this, you know, was deeply rooted in, in uh, you, you know, the sort of social issues in the time. And he was, he was himself, you know, a Pinkerton. So it was very realistic. The Peter Cheney stuff is just off the wall. Every <laughs> it's written first person. Every word that's supposed to end in ing is in apostrophe. Nice. Um, there is no pacing to the book. It's it's written like a serial that's been condensed to a novel. Just nonstop action. Just it's nothing but if he's not beating up someone, you know, he, he's going from one girl to the next. But he doesn't really have time for girls because he's just kicking the shit out of people. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's he's totally unemotional. He's just you know, slam bang action, pulp hero. And it, it, it almost reminds me of, a. there's another Sounds British like writer. Hammer. Well, yeah. I mean, it's 10 years before, uh, I, the jury and it, that's, I was thinking the same thing, you know, they're, they're both taking the, this, you know, hyper masculine archetype and, and, and turning up to 11. But I think Peter Cheney actually goes to 12. So the, the other Lemmy caution films I've seen are themselves parodies of, of hard boiled, stories and they you know they're absolutely surreal the plots make no sense the more you try to focus on what's happening the less sense it makes and so i i can sort of see the appeal that godard would have to these because they 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 take genre and it's just it's totally abstracted so Alphaville almost does fit in then with the lemmy caution films i think it totally does i mean it's it's very much a godard film he takes in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just this abstract, you know, in, indulgence in, in genre, in style, in in, in design. Um, they're they're totally fascinating and kind of amazing and totally bizarre movies. I kind of cut you off. You said that it reminded you of another British writer, Eric Knight, who wrote the Lassie books in the late '30s. Uh, he was a British writer. He also did his sort of take on American hard-boiled fiction uh, with You Play the Black and the Red Comes Up. And James Hadley Chase also did that with uh, um, No Orchids for Miss Blandish. So there was this sort of, uh, you know, there's this little, I don't know how many writers are doing it, but there were definitely these British writers who were doing the American thing, but just, you know, doing it more so all in the late 30s. Well, I can definitely see the appeal for the French audiences who were kind of, you know, infatuated uh, and maybe disturbed by the American stuff. Um, you know, like, of course, with Godard, he was very fascinated by all the B movies and the, the whole idea of, uh, you know, pulp and everything. And, you know, we, we, talked ages ago on the show about uh, Shoot the Piano Player, which was an interpretation of um, the goodest by Truffaut. And he had some very outrageous kind of stuff in there. The whole idea of the, you know, the thugs talking about wearing women's underwear and everything. For me, I'm much more, I suppose, a Truffaut man than a Godard man. Like if you're going to do that kind of uh, Pulp Fiction-esque thing where you're either a, an Elvis person or a Beatles person, I'm much more in the Truffaut camp, I suppose. But um, I can see the appeal of certain Godard films such as Alphaville. Did you all see the Jess Franco, uh, Eddie Constantine movie? I did not. 
Attack of the Robots. It came after this, but it actually recycles some of the plot. It involves this giant computer that's turning uh, people with a very rare blood type, of which Eddie Constantine is one of them, into robotic assassins who are taking out uh, VIPs around the world. And uh, Eddie Constantine is hired to uh, supposedly track down a gang in Spain, but he's actually being... uh, you know, a guinea pig for the uh, computer to become the next zombie assassin. Huh. And then at the end, he also has to destroy the computer in order to, uh, you know, save the world and you know stop the people from acting all crazy. I like that Eddie Constantine, even when he wasn't officially playing, let me caution, he would be in um, movies where his character name would be things like Cousin Lemmy. You know, or um, it just yeah, some interesting things. And and he played uh, Nick Carter as well in one film, and I'd like to track that down because Nick Carter was another interesting private dick as well, super agent. Rob, have you seen any of the other uh, Lemmy Caution movies? No, I haven't. Um, I think that we may have had them at Thomas Video. I want to say that maybe something weird or someone put them out on VHS years ago. And I remember a whole shelf of them and sort of uh, that something weird old school um, video box art. Sinister Cinema has them out right now. Yeah, but I have not seen them. They're, uh, if you're looking for a confused 90 minutes... Uh, they're they're wonderful fun, but make zero sense. <laughs> I'll be I'll be watching more of them. I'd love to see an eclipse box set with all of them in nice prints. Uh, the problem with the uh, sinister cinema attack of the robots is it's it's cropped from widescreen to one three three. But that said, I'm thankful to Sinister Cinema for having all of them available on Amazon. Yeah, I've only seen just one uh, other one, and it looked really nice. It was from some sort of French release, and then somebody fan-subbed it. So I was like, oh, okay, good. Um, so it, it, beautiful, beautiful print of it. Uh, maybe better than Sinister Cinemas? I don't know. Because it seemed like whenever I would order stuff on them on VHS, it would look um, fairly rotten most of the time. But, you know, they, they it's all just kind of luck of the draw if memory serves. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with David Sterrett, author of The Films of Jean-Luc Godard, Seeing the Invisible, after these important messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o 
T-H at adamandeve.com. Midnight Matinee presents the beloved musical, John and Tony Die at the End, featuring all the hits, Amerisauce, the common bag of the take me to the emergency room to pump my stomach, to bring in an exorcist, to go- Miss Morris. Miss Morris. Um, I really don't think Miss Morris. One head, one heart. I was aiming for his heart. But yeah, I did get him. I feel pretty soy sauce. G Detective Appleton. Now you're getting high, partner. On the soy sauce. It's got you. And bestiology. Up until this point, our histories were identical. Bestiology. John and Tony die at the end. Available on Midnight Matinee at the stroke of midnight, Friday, November 13th on WFMU 91.1 FM and streaming at WFMU.org. Be there or be Korok. Available on a track. All hail Korok. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies, every Tuesday. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. It's just, it's just go hog wild. In the car accident, you just use a little bit, it'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> it'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. I am David Sterrett, and I, um, let's see, what do I do these days? Uh, I'm a, a, a semi-retired college professor. I'm now uh, an adjunct professor of art history and humanistic studies at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and I am the editor-in-chief of Quarterly Review and of Film and Video, and I'm a staff writer at Cineast, and those are a few of the things I do. I also write books. And speaking of, one of the books that I wanted to talk to you about is the one that you have written on Jean-Luc Godard. Yeah, that one's kind of an oldie by now, but uh, yep, yep, I did that back in the 90s. And can you tell me what the title is and sort of what you were looking at in that book? Yeah, sure. Uh, the title of that book is The Films of Jean-Luc Godard, and the subtitle is Seeing the Invisible. Uh, it was written for uh, a series that Cambridge University Press put together called the Cambridge Film Classics, and the title was always the films of so-and-so. 
uh, and I wanted to have the subtitle Seeing the Invisible, which I took from uh, the little uh, a line in one of Godard's films where a character says, seeing the invisible is exhausting. And uh, it is exhausting. It sounds exhausting. And uh, I just thought that was a good, uh, a good kind of subtitle because one, one way of looking at what Godard has done in his career is to somehow make invisible things visible on the screen, which is uh, a paradox and an impossibility, and I think that paradox and impossibility are two of his major themes. And if you're going to spend any time, you know, writing a book on anyone, you obviously have some interest in him. So where did your interest in Godard originally come from? Well, I uh, started uh, getting really seriously interested in film back in the 1960s uh, when I was a college student. I'm a very old dude. And uh, Godard was very much around. Uh, his movies were still, uh, I mean, he was still making his, his first films back in those days. Uh, Breathless was sort of always on the, the, the revival circuit, uh, and it was pretty easy to see. And a uh, number of his other films were, uh, were were coming along, and it was very clear right from the beginning that he had exactly what I was looking for and what a lot of people uh, were looking for back uh, in that era. The 60s, of course, uh, and I think it's, it's worth dwelling on the 60s for just a moment because uh, that's when Godard really started out as a feature filmmaker. And uh, the 60s were a time of... of, of uh, Questioning conventional wisdom, uh, questioning received ideas of all kinds. And that was going on in America, uh, you know, with all kinds of things, the anti-Vietnam War protests and the sexual revolution and all this stuff. Uh, and it was also going on very, very much in France, uh, coming to a, a sort of a climax with uh, the events of May 1968, when there could possibly have been a revolution, a leftist revolution uh, in France, and then it all fizzled out sort of overnight. Uh, but Godard was very much a part of that generation of people who wanted to look at everything in new ways and, and get rid of the old ways uh, and uh, question everything that we had been told and taught uh, and see if there were better ways of thinking and speaking and being. And uh, so Godard was really interested in doing that through film. So were all of the young filmmakers of, of the new wave group, Francois Truffaut and Jacques Rivette and the others. Uh, but Godard was in some ways really the most radical, not necessarily the most politically radical at that time, uh, back in the earlier part of the 60s, although he certainly became very radical soon thereafter, uh, but you know, culturally radical, uh, artistically radical. And uh, so uh, that's what I, w I was fascinated by in film. I wasn't necessarily putting it together with the whole uh, kind of 1960s that was erupting all around me, uh, but uh, I was thinking very much that I had grown up looking at a certain kind of movie. I liked movies. I had looked at Hollywood movies mostly. I thought they were really fine. I always had a good time at the movies, but I never really took them all that seriously. And it was when I started to see specifically movies by French filmmakers like Godard and Alain René that I realized there was a whole different language that movies could speak, which was not the language of the movies that I had, uh, had grown up with. And I didn't understand that language, but I was really fascinated by it and I wanted to start to figure it out and uh, Godard was exactly the sort of challenge that I was ready for. 
The thing that's kind of interesting from a viewer's perspective, and I'm a fan of his work as well, is that it seems that he is taking, I guess we could say, traditional American forms of film, uh, at least in the early go, with uh, when you talk about Breathless, the idea of like the film noir in some way and sort of mutating it and playing with it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, if you kind of go through Godard's first features, the first several of them, uh, first of all, there's Breathless. And, well, I'll just cut to my own chase here. Uh, what he's doing, it seems, and I don't think that he was doing this with a particular program or a schedule or itinerary, uh, but he seemed to be taking one genre after another and sort of taking it apart and shaking it around and sticking all the pieces back together in some different order. And the results did not always work, that's for sure. Same as it wouldn't always work if you were doing this with a gizmo or a machine or something. Take it apart, put the pieces back together in some new way. Uh, but sometimes they really did work, and other times parts of them worked, and sometimes they were fascinating failures. But uh, he, he did this with his first feature, Breathless, which is basically a gangster movie, but a very unconventional gangster movie in all kinds of ways. Uh, his next movie was A Woman is a Woman, and it's a musical, but done sort of the opposite way from the way most musicals are done. Certainly not the kind of spectacle of the traditional Hollywood musical, much more intimate than that. Uh, Vivre Sa Vie is a story of a prostitute in Paris, and it's also a, just a bravura stylistic exercise. I think it's one of the great Godard films. Le Petit Soldat is sort of a war movie, an espionage movie. Um, uh, Les Carabiniers is a war movie. Uh, Contempt is a story about the movie business, among other things. Uh, Band of Outsiders is another gangster movie. And Femme Marier is a story of an unhappy marriage. And then, of course, we get to Alphaville, which is a science fiction movie. And it goes on like that for a little while longer. And then he starts to get into his, his, uh, his extremely uh, political phase, and his movies become very different. But uh, he's, he's doing that with each one of them. Uh, uh, just sort of uh, taking a familiar genre and seeing what brand new thing can be made out of the traditional elements thereof. The one that we're talking about this week is Alphaville. And the thing that I'm not familiar with with Alphaville, and I was wondering if you were, if you watched any of the films related, is the series that he's kind of playing with, which is, from my understanding, this French uh, sort of film noir series with the character Lemmy Caution, played by Eddie Constantine, who's also in Alphaville. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Eddie Constantine was um, American-born, but uh, he really became a movie star of sorts uh, in France. And yeah, he was in quite a few movies. It wasn't uh, like the Bond films where every couple of years another one comes out. Uh, but he did. He played this uh, detective uh, with the very strange name, well, his whimsical name of Lemmy Caution as if he was pitching messages at us from the screen. And um, uh, Godard uh, was, was taking, yes, he was taking that character and the guy who played him in these movies, Eddie Constantine, uh, but he was putting them together with, uh, I mean, it really is a science fiction movie. So uh, he's, he's, he's making science fiction out of this, this, uh, this detective character. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very typical Godard kind of a thing. It's a, uh, it's, it's a kind of a strange hybrid uh, that seems to be created on entirely uh, intuitive, instinctive terms by Godard. The thing that I find funny about it is, compared to today's version of what science fiction is, 
there really is no special effects except maybe a flashing light. Well, yeah, the most famous thing of all uh, about um, about uh, the, the science fiction aspect of Alphaville is that uh, Godard filmed it in Paris right as Paris was at that time. Uh, he simply uh, went out and, 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 and shows locations very carefully. He was working with the guy who was his regular cinematographer back in that era, Raoul Coutard, one of the great geniuses of all time uh, of cinematography. And uh, he and Coutard went out and they chose these, uh, these various locations, uh, mostly interiors, some exteriors. Uh, and they chose ones that would look, first of all, I mean, uh, some of them do have a very futuristic look. So, yeah, uh, sometimes we have things that at least go in the direction of what we're accustomed to from most traditional science fiction, uh, the kind of streamlined, gleaming surfaces and stuff. But more often, uh, or I'll say at least as often, we have the sort of opposite of that, which is the grungy, grimy-looking sub-basement kind of look that uh, that I guess now we associate with kind of steampunk stuff. Uh, Terry Gilliam has gone in that direction in some of his movies. Uh, so uh, it has science fiction elements that go in both of those directions, but uh, again, all filmed on locations as they were. Godard didn't have any money, so he, you know, budgets or anything. So he wasn't able to build fancy sets or even to do a whole lot of dressing up of existing locations, although, of course, he had to do some of that. What he mainly did was film things on locations that he found in which he and Coutard were they were able to make places look, uh, I won't even say you know, futuristic, although the movie presumably takes place in the future, uh, but to make them look otherworldly. They don't look quite like the world we live in. They look almost like the world we live in. And that, of course, is, is, is way more kind of unsettling uh, than something that looks maybe entirely different and, and that announces itself as, as fantasy every moment. In your research on Alphaville, what did you find in terms of where this idea was coming from for him and, and why this film at this time in 1965? I think that the, the, the basics of it is, are, are that he wanted to try his hand at a science fiction movie. And also, even though he was not, again, in his really uh, sort of super political phase of his career yet, uh, he was very interested in you know, the world as it existed around him at that moment. In other words, he wasn't interested in making movies that were disconnected from the world, from the world that he lived in, that we all live in. He was interested in making movies that were really, really, really connected with that, but in very eccentric, very personal ways for him. So uh, I think the idea of taking a science fiction story, we're going to be in the future and we're going to have this guy who came here from somewhere else in the galaxy uh, and he's a detective and he's on these various missions and he has to find a scientist and this and that. Taking that and using that as a way of exploring certain tendencies in French life and in general Western civilization life, right at the time that Godard was making the film. So there are many, many references to the past in Alphaville, and mostly they're references to very unpleasant aspects of the past. 
for example, the Nazi era. Uh, it, it, it's hard to remember this, but like when Alphaville was made, uh, not only World War II, but the whole Hitler era and uh, the Holocaust and these things which profoundly affected France. Of course, they affected the United States. They affected everywhere, but they profoundly uh, affected France. They, they were only 20 years in the past. So, you know, they were very, very recent history. It's something like right now, somebody were making a movie, a science fiction movie that was referencing all these things that happened just in 1995. So there's a character named Natasha von Braun, uh, a reference uh, to a Russian first name, uh, but a, a last name uh, very much associated uh, with a, uh, a rocket scientist who had done a lot of work uh, with, uh, for, for the German uh, military-industrial complex during the World War II era. Uh, and uh, there's references to the SS, the lightning bolt insignias of, of the Nazi SS. So, so there are references like that. Uh, and again, these are not you know, nostalgic things. These are things that Godard is still feeling in the air around him when he's making Alphaville. And then there are also the kind of futuristic elements of it, pointing to where we might be going as, as a society and I'm, I'm talking now generally about sort of Western European, uh, American, uh, North American, particularly uh, society and culture and politics. So the basic setup of Alphaville is that we have a society which is controlled by a computer. Uh, very forward thinking of Godard back in 1965. And uh, it's called Alpha 60. Uh, and it controls everything apparently with a very iron hand, and it controls the way people think uh, and the way people are allowed to speak and so forth. And I think that when Godard gets into something like this, he's thinking very much about uh, some of the, the, the worst directions in which uh, French society and, again, generally Western culture might be going in, in, at that time. When I look at his films in this era and this one too, like you were talking about later, he gets more into the political stuff. And this to me could be a transitional piece because there's still some of that what I'll call existentialist philosophy that seems to run throughout the first few films and into here. And as you said, he starts coming in talking about things such as the rise of corporations and sort of disembodied power into the machines. Oh, for sure, yeah, and and uh, again, he's he's not yet in in his his sort of super political phase, uh, which started uh, yeah just a few years later, but he's he's he is moving in that direction again. Though it's 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 not so much political commentary or critique; it's cultural commentary or critique, and that that includes politics, but it extends uh, a good way past politics as well. I mean, among other things, he's interested in architecture. Godard is always interested in architecture, and a couple. A couple of years before Alphaville, he made uh, his movie Contempt, uh, which I think is, is one of the greatest films ever made by anybody anywhere uh, in its exploration of certain kinds of architecture uh, in the, basically three different phases in the film. There's a few more than that, but roughly three different phases uh, that take place in different kinds of architectural settings, which are crucially important to what's going on, both in uh, containing what's going on and being expressions of what 
what's going on in the story and in Godard's mind. Uh, so uh, in Alphaville, there's there's architecture, and even though it occasionally is gleaming and streamlined, and some of the exteriors are full of all sorts of you know the nighttime lights of the city and all the sort of mystery and power and beauty that the lights shining in the darkness have. Uh, there's also a kind of a sinister and dehumanized air uh, to a lot of this as well. So again, these settings that he and Coutard sh- chose are uh, are they are chosen very carefully. Sometimes for their 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 unpleasant uh, implications of what might be going on in the sort of cultural unconscious uh, of of Paris and of France and of Western Europe and so forth at that time. Uh, and, and there's certainly plenty of other things like that. The whole idea of the world being, you know, society being controlled by a computer, uh, and the idea of there's references in the film, two or three references in the film to uh, uh, to the Bible. Uh, Eddie Constantine, the character Lenny Caution, is staying in a hotel room, and a couple of times people say, well, "Where's the Bible?" Every every hotel room has one, or every room has one, probably. Uh, and a little bit, well, late in the film, we find out that by Bible, people mean this book, and yeah, it's there in the room, uh, and it's a dictionary. And Lenny Caution expresses surprise. Wait a minute, this isn't a Bible, this is a dictionary. So he says, well, yeah, uh, words are always appearing and disappearing out of this, and they're the words that we're allowed to say and not allowed to say. And when a word goes out of that, we're not allowed to say it anymore. So this is another example of how Godard is using uh, this sort of science fiction movie premise uh, as a way of exploring uh, the, the kind of... of, 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 of uh, cultural control and social control and perhaps even mind control that a really advanced society can engage in and which I think he felt that there was a danger that we were moving toward at that time and maybe we've arrived. Now, Godard is not the first, by the way, obviously, to think up a lot of this stuff. Uh, Some of this is pure 1984. It's pure George Orwell, you know, writing in the late 1940s. Uh, The idea of things going down the memory hole, you know, there something is erased from the official record and now nobody is allowed to even remember it anymore, that kind of thing. Uh, so Godard is picking up on that and, let's say, sort of giving it a new spin in Alphaville. That was one of the things that I was going to say is that it does at times remind me of 1984. And it's interesting that you bring up Terry Gilliam in terms of where this film has gone as a possibility to have influenced other films and other filmmakers that we see in, in forward past this. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Godard has been exceedingly influential. And in fact, uh, for a filmmaker who almost never has had a commercial hit in decades and decades and decades of filmmaking, uh, he has still managed to keep on making movies and, you know, right up to this day. And he has always stayed at the absolute cutting edge of what is going on. Not only has he almost never had a commercial hit, uh, but he, uh, he almost never, I, I, I personally would feel comfortable saying never, never has made a wholly conventional film. And in the great, great, great majority of cases, he has not even come close to making a conventional film in this or that project. Uh, and uh, again, in these early films, uh, the w- titles I mentioned before, yeah, they are genre films in their way, although they're, they're with his own very idiosyncratic spin. Uh, but uh, soon after this phase, 
days of sort of the early and middle 1960s. I would say after about the time he makes Weekend and uh, and La Chinoise. Then he moves into his ultra-radical, ultra-left, ultra-Marxist, Maoist phase. And he wants to make movies. Yeah, he deliberately wants to make movies, which will be outside the capitalist marketplace. And he succeeds because none of them could have a chance of ever getting into the capitalist marketplace, even if he wanted them to. And those were movies that had very, very, very tiny audiences. Uh, and then when he returned to quote unquote mainstream filmmaking uh, around the middle of the 70s, uh, he was by that time aesthetically radicalized and never looked back from there. And so if you look at movies like, uh, you know, starting maybe with something like uh, Every Man for Himself, Sauf qui peut la vie, uh, and then moving on through things like Nouvelle Vague, which he made in 1990, uh, in, in the 90s, uh, the, the movie Germany, 90, Germany Year 1990, which is an exploration of uh, the kind of post-communist landscape with Eddie Constantine playing Lemmy Caution in a return engagement. Uh, and then going on after that, again, making a lot of movies, uh, most of them, not all of them features, and always being on the cutting edge of, of, of not only of subject matter and treatment, but even of technology, using video in dazzling ways when hardly anybody else was, was you know, of uh, feature filmmakers were using it. And most recently, uh, 3D, his movie Goodbye to Language. Uh, his, uh, his, his phenomenally great, uh, 3D film, which is, uh, in terms of, 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 of specific meaning, uh, it will take many, many viewings to even begin to, uh, to, to get a real handle on exactly, uh, what he is saying, sort of shot by shot or sequence by sequence in that film. But as a visual experience, an audio visual experience, it is absolutely overwhelming easily the best 3D film ever made as up to this day. And I think it'll be a long time before anybody creates anything that is so, so just uh, aesthetically stunning again using the 3D format. And uh, so, again, the, the guy is, is just an incorrigible experimenter. Uh, and that goes back to his very early days. And uh, a movie like Alphaville, which seemed in its time very, very radical artistically, uh, today seems almost compared with a whole lot of things that Godard has done since. What's interesting for me is that you talk about how you first encountered him almost 50 years ago. He's been making films almost 60 years, and I get the sense in your voice that there's still something exciting about this guy for you. Oh, I, 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 not just for me either, uh, sure. He has never been a filmmaker for the masses, uh, for the many, uh, in fact, he's generally been the film a filmmaker for, for the very few, uh, and that's not an elitist remark. It's just the very few who want to engage with movies that are uh, as difficult as his are by conventional terms. In other words, to 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 turn them as you watch them to mentally turn them into some sort of linear expression uh, of, of, of narrative and ideas. Uh, Godard has always resisted that, while at the same time feeling the pull of it. 
you know, his own mentors, uh, artistic mentors, not that he just ever worked with them or anything, but whose films he watched and admired and learned from included some obvious uh, art filmmakers like Roberto Rossellini and uh, Jean Renoir and Jean Cocteau and so forth, uh, but also the great Hollywood auteurs. Godard, remembering, was one of the uh, inventors of the auteur theory back in the 1950s, uh, the idea that, right, that, that making a feature film, if you have really something to say, and if you have a strong enough artistic personality, creative personality, to channel the efforts of that army of people that it takes to make a feature film, to channel all of that work so that it all comes out expressing your point of view, then you can be called the author of your film and you can make a personal film, as personal as if you painted a picture or wrote a story or something. And uh, so Godard was one of the inventors of that, and that is always what he has sought to be, and I think what he has very successfully been. So again, his movies are always really, really uh, eccentric. And when you watch them to determine just what it is that he feels he is saying and to kind of make that have an orderly form in your own mind, uh, it's a lot of work. And it's the kind of work that most people don't want. You know, most people go to the movies for escape. I do, too, at, at times, at, at plenty of times. Uh, but these are movies that demand a certain amount of work. But, you know, it's not all work. Again, if you open your eyes and if you open your ears and just take them as uh, as, as uh, sensory experiences. Now, Alphaville is not in any way, I would say, a beautiful film. It has some beautiful shots in it. And it has a magnificent little poetic sequence uh, where the screen is sort of darkening and lightening and Anna Karina is an extreme close-up and there's a little sort of a poetic uh, uh, discourse going on the soundtrack. Uh, things like this are very, very beautiful. But a lot of the time, Godard is working specifically against beauty in that film, not only in some of the locations that he chooses with this kind of inhuman feeling that some of them have, uh, but in the, the, the sort of what is a sort of a narration for the film. It isn't really a narration, but this voice we hear from time to time, which is the voice of the computer, Alpha 60, and Godard famously used... Uh, for that voice, uh, a man who had lost the use of his larynx, who could not speak normally anymore, Godard said that he wanted a voice that had been killed because he's dealing here with a society that he feels has been killed by technology, by its own sort of uh, inherent fascist tendencies. Uh, so it, that aspect of the film is very grating and even very ugly, and it turned a lot of people off in 1965, and I had my own very mixed feelings about the film for a while because of that, and then I began to see it as sort of a grander scale where the, the beauty and the ugliness and the, the other different kinds of aesthetic uh, qualities that a Godard film can have, they take different different balances in many, many different films. But he is always kind of working against the mainstream, against what everybody else is doing. And I asked him years ago, how do you keep on making movies? You know, I mean, you, you, you've just seemed to you know, always be breaking whatever all the rules are at that particular moment. And, you know, he said it, it has partly to do uh, with, uh, with the studio system and partly to do particularly, I think, I don't remember exactly what he said, but with the Gaumont studio in France. Because, uh, for better or for worse, he has a name, he has a reputation, Godard does, people know who he is, he has an, a following, it's a small following, you know, in movie-making terms, uh, but it is a following, and he doesn't 
doesn't cost him very much to make these extremely personal, very eccentric movies of his. Uh, and so, and, and you know, sometimes there are some pretty important actors who will work with him because they think it'll be an interesting experience, and I'm sure it is, for better or for worse. So he gets to keep on sort of making movies on that basis, but, but he said years ago in, in a video that he made with his partner, M.A. Mayville, uh, called Soft and Hard, uh, he said, you know, I'm an outsider and there's a bunch of us. Uh, you know, Vin Vendors, I remember he mentioned at that time. You know, people who are just not going to be in the commercial mainstream, whether or not they ever want it to be, they're never going to be. And as long as they can keep on making their movies, uh, you know, inexpensively, but on their own terms, they'll keep plugging away. And that is what he has done. And yes, I find him absolutely fascinating. And if there were any doubt about his being fascinating, uh, certainly uh, his 3D film, uh, Goodbye to Language, uh, should, should erase that doubt because it is as adventurous, it is as bold, it is as young. I mean, as any movie I can think of maybe ever. I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, somebody who is older than about, you know, 23 or something having such a bold conception and, 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 and putting it, it, it uh, so uncompromisingly on the screen. Uh, and yet he's done it. I recently stepped down after 10 years as chair of the National Society of Film Critics. And I cannot tell you how surprised I was and how delighted I was. We actually voted that uh, the best movie of the year. Uh, gave it our best film award. And I think the whole group was surprised at that. <laughs> but somehow it happened. And uh, I don't think there was one person in that room, or you know, to the, even now after, after the fact, including me, who would say, oh yeah, sit down in five minutes, I'll tell you what that movie's all about. Because it's a very, very dense and very, very challenging piece of work. But we know that it is overflowing with meaning and that as a sensory experience, it is just absolutely dazzling. So, you know, this guy is now way up in his 80s. And as far as I'm concerned, he has one of the youngest sensibilities in all of world film. You know, it's interesting that in his early career, he was writing uh, criticism. And as you say, with the uh, the Kaiji Cinema uh, folks came up with, you know, in part the auteur theory and things like that. And when you look at his range of film from the early to the, the most recent, as you talk about, what do you think are some of the hallmarks or themes or things that he keeps coming back to? Oh yeah, like again, one of the uh, one of the hallmarks of a uh, of an auteur is that that auteur has something to say and is going to make personal movies that express that theme, uh, even when different genres are in play and so forth. So, I mean, one of Godard's really basic, I think, uh, attitudes has to do with the 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 uh, the aesthetic nature of of, of movie making. So, something that he has has said uh, a lot, and I think it, it it is right at the core of everything. Not only in terms of his approach to how he makes films and to the style that he puts or styles that he uh, puts to use in his movies, but in terms of his own of what he wants to get across to audiences uh, is the idea that film, as he says, uh, should be uh, partly is partly a spectacle and partly an investigation. And here he's kind of going back to the earliest days of film in a way, the Lumiere brothers with their little actualities, their little documentaries of things that were happening in the world, uh, and Georges Méliès with his fabulous, uh, fantastical movies, movies of, of fantasy and science fiction and so forth, which Martin Scorsese recently paid tribute to in his movie Hugo. And um, Godard has always felt that those, those, those two tendencies... Uh, absolutely should should be together. And the trouble with cinema 
is the, and, and the trouble with all of modern society uh, is that it has been hijacked by money, by considerations of money, and cinema is especially vulnerable to that because film, feature films are expensive to make. Even the cheap ones are expensive to make. Um, compared with other forms of art, you can paint a picture in your living room, you know, if you want to or write a story or compose a symphony. So films are expensive to make, but uh, he feels that they, like most other things in, in, in contemporary life, got hijacked by money and that they became mostly spectacle and empty spectacle at that. And he feels the spectacle part of it, which is to say something to look at, something to listen to, which is worthy of your attention, is going to hold your attention, uh, should always be combined with that other aspect, which is to be an investigation, to be really looking at things that matter in our world right now. And again, he does this not like a message movie uh, or a problem picture, as they used to call them, where the movie looks at something through a story and then uh, comes to a conclusion and preaches a moral to its audience. Rather, it's through engaging on a much more kind of granular level than that. It's making a movie which in its, its, its moment-to-moment progress and even within each frame, remembering that a frame in conventional projection is on the screen for about a 48th of a second, uh, that each element there will have some sort of connection with the world that we live in and that he will be representing it and questioning it and critiquing it at the same time, even as uh, he is hoping to take give us enough to look at and listen to that our attention will be held by whatever it is that he's showing us. So uh, sometimes he deals with religious subjects, as he did, for example, in the 80s with Hail Mary, another one of his very greatest films, I think. Uh, sometimes he sort of goes in a kind of a mythological or uh, direction, as he did, for example, with one of his great failed films, Elas uh, Pour Moi, Oh, Woe Is Me. Big problem with that one. He got himself a big Paris movie star, Gerard Depardieu, who then got along so badly with Godard that he simply walked off the production after a while and Godard had to finish the film anyway. Uh, and sometimes Godard uh, uh, deals directly with the movie business, as uh, as done a number of times. Uh, a movie he made called Passion, uh, Passing Off, for example, is about an Eastern European filmmaker uh, who wants to make a movie which seems to involve the, uh, the recreation of classic paintings, uh, but doing it with actors in three dimensions and moving the camera among them. And this poor guy, his name is Yerzi, his producers keep coming by and saying, but what's the story? And he has absolutely no idea what to tell them because he hasn't got a story. Uh, so, you know, that's a very, very interesting movie that I think is very autobiographical on Godard's part because he's always straining against that thing where you have a story and you make the spectacle, you make the narrative pull what the movie is mainly about and you sort of get in the, the thoughtful stuff around the edges. No, Godard wants to go straight directly to the thoughtful stuff and fill the screen with that. And he himself is thinking when he is making the movie. So like Yerzy, he's so I, I'd be willing to tell a story, but I really don't seem to have a story to tell. That's my story. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he goes in all these kinds of different... I, I, think, I think these are among the things that he is saying through his movies. He's saying that we and the art form that I love most 
have been hijacked by money, by entertainment, by frivolousness, and uh, that that stuff has its place, but that it should be combined with really, really serious stuff. And I mentioned just a moment ago that Yerzy is an Eastern European filmmaker, the, the, the character in that movie. Uh, Godard, for example, uh, in a number of his films... Uh, going back at least as far as Hail Mary in the Middle 80s, deals with Eastern Europe and the particular problems there and the particular trials and tribulations both before and after the Soviet era and so forth. And then, you know, in some recent films dealing with, like Notre Musique, dealing with that very directly and poignantly and in very political terms. And it, it has to be said too here, also Forever Mozart is another movie that does that, that Godard does sometimes deal, does sometimes deal directly with current political issues and is willing in those cases to be you know pretty unguarded and has raised a whole lot of controversy uh, my colleague Richard Brody who is quite a brilliant film critic in a lot of ways wrote a biography of Godard called Everything is Cinema which is a great title uh, Everything is Cinema the Working Life of Jean Godard of Jean-Luc Godard uh, in which he accuses Godard of kind of a of a uh, and anti-Semitism running through Godard's uh, career, basically, as a kind of a subtext, sometimes rising up to the surface. Uh, I think that Richard really overemphasizes that a lot. In fact, I think, I think that there are moments in Godard's films that are problematic in that department. I'm not sure I would identify any particular moments as anti-Semitic, much less find this a thread running through his filmography. But the point I'm making is that Godard takes risks, and sometimes he is interpreted, maybe or maybe not misinterpreted, uh, in ways that he probably would prefer not to be. But he probably knew that he was running that risk when he took the risk. So, uh, you know, what he's going to do next is impossible to predict. If he lives for another 10 years, let's say into his middle 90s, my guess is he'll make several more movies, uh, some features, probably a bunch of short films. Uh, and that they will be the opposite of, of, of the mellowed out old age kind of movie. Uh, I predict that they will be whatever he does from here on out, just as, uh, as unpredictable, idiosyncratic, eccentric, um, even wrongheaded uh, from time to time uh, as anything he's done before. He's just endlessly fascinating. And um, where is the, uh, the best place for people to find out more about you, your work and your writing? Well, uh, they can go to my website, which is www.davidsterrett.com, uh, and I almost never get around to updating it, but there's a bunch of stuff on there going back maybe a few years in for the most recent stuff. Uh, that's there. And, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a contributing writer at Cineast, and so you can find uh, stuff I've written there over the years, Cineast Magazine, uh, and which is a very, very excellent film magazine. Uh, and, you know, just Google, do a Google search on my name and put a director's name after it or a film's name or a film industry's name and you'll come up with some stuff well thank you so much for taking the time a real pleasure thanks so much for asking me thank you david stewart you can learn more about his work and pick up a copy of his book on our website projection-booth.com we're back and we're talking about alphaville and um gentlemen you had the pleasure of watching um Godard work with uh eddie constantine again so how was that tell me about this film <laughs> pleasure is definitely not a word i would choose <laughs> Oh really? What what word would you choose? Uh, and it, and would it be included in the Alphaville dictionary? 
Uh, well, I think convoluted might be in their dictionary or pretentious. Um, definitely something along those lines. Uh, Germany 90, zero, sorry, Germany 990 uh, from 1991, one of um, Eddie Constantine's final roles. Uh, surprisingly, not looking very different to me than he did in 1964. I was just like, wow, uh, very well preserved. That man had good genes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe he was born at 55, but he stayed 55. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I, I, it was tough finding a picture of a young Eddie Constantine. Did you try to watch this one? Because I made it about 15 minutes through, and then I had to give up. Oh, I saw the whole thing, and the, the last wow. the last shot is actually one of the earliest shots in Alphaville, um, when he's in the hotel room with the Bible. You know, the, the woman who shows him the room and gives the Bible to him. Wow, nice little tie-in. Otherwise, I wasn't really seeing anything other than some uh, street signs that kind of tied in, like uh, Karl Marxstrasse um, and some semi-detective work going on. But then when they would get into the parts where it was like the woman and the man sitting at a table and one speaking French and the other one seems to be speaking German and the subtitles were only doing like half the translation. I was just like, yeah, this is way too much for me right now. You know, it kind of made sense to me if, if this is a sequel, because if you, know, as, as y'all suggested, if let me caution is a man from the past, he's a man out of time. You know, he, he replaced that character again in this movie you know he has he serves absolutely no purpose in this landscape you know he's just walking across the country and the movie's nothing but dialogue about philosophy and economy and government and you know how i mean it even goes into how you know the arts you know relate to all of this when they're talking about oh is this government sponsored is this not um it does seem to have some of the same preoccupations of, as alphaville just without the uh, you know the secret agent storyline, um, in so many let me caution movies, you know he's going behind you know enemy lines. He's going, he's crossing borders. He's infiltrating other countries. And in this movie, you don't need to do that anymore. It's it's he's completely uh, obsolete, and so are his plots. I was seeing a lot of uh, footage from World War Two. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't following what the hell was going on with this. And then it didn't help that I was just, like I said, the subtitles to me weren't that great. I won't blame the subtitles though. I'm, I'm a very limited person, so I just wasn't bringing a whole lot to the to the party. But it's 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 almost it's almost an essay. Like I almost feel like you just have to, you know, take the movie scene by scene. Godard is doing what he increasingly does in, in more recent films of his, uh, sometimes there'll be two people speaking at the same time, a narrator and someone on camera. And the subtitles are trying to give you the best approximation that they can. Um, it's, it's, it's almost something that has to be read more than a, a narrative, you know, as we had in Alphaville. That doesn't mean I understand what the hell happened in, in this movie, but, uh, it's funny how, so that was made in 91. And I really couldn't make heads or tails about it. I, I wasn't 
mad about it though. I think had I been like going to a film festival and had to sit through that, I probably, I either would have gotten up and walked out or I just would have been really angry when it was over. Uh, just because it is just, I don't know. It's almost like the wrong medium. Like you're talking about, it is felt more like an essay and it was just like, is this really, is film really the best way to be telling this story? And it, it was interesting to go back and read how upset people were when it came to um, Alphaville showing the first time. Um, there was a great article about uh, Godard at the third New York Film Festival, and they had a panel discussing um, some of his films after. And this was like the premiere of Alphaville at this film festival, and it was great. There was. Uh, Pauline Kale was on the panel, as was uh, Andrew Saris. And, of course, those two did not get uh, along at all, really. Uh, and it's funny because Pauline Kale was not at the New Yorker yet. She was listed as being on the Partisan Review. And then uh, Saris was still at the Village Voice at this point. Um, if you guys indulge me, I just want to read a little bit of this to you. It's pretty funny. Uh, what so many of the critics had been objecting to as in-jokes on filmmaking or mere gimmicks in the film are essential part of, uh, parts of the film's meaning and style, Godard's unique personal expression. One such device is the switching to negative film Godard employs here and in The Married Woman. Godard explained that Alphaville is a film of, quote, lights and darks a society in which humanistic values were reversed and standardized. This is what he wanted to remind us of in the sudden switches to negative. In The Married Woman, a similar idea was in mind. Plus, the fact that the negative was used in portraying a photographer taking shots of models, thus having a more direct iconic iconographic relationship. And uh, I just want to skip down a little bit. Uh, the discussion moved on to more general subjects in other films. Miss Kale was afraid Godard's films had been progressively dealing with less and less truth and concentrating too single-mindedly on visual tricks. Godard said that he believed his style was not something separable from what he was trying to say in his films. What he aimed at were the more interchangeable values, truth and beauty, and where he found one, he found the other. He found it both in Rossellini and in Hitchcock, and a camera of movement was just as likely to contain as much meaning as a line of dialogue. Kale objected to Godard's references to Hitchcock, stating that his films had also met with the decline since the 50s, where was the great Hitchcock of the 30s? Asked to give an example of Hitchcock's decline, Kale offered vertigo. Godard smiled, evidently in quite fundamental disagreement. Saris made clear the opposite poles of criticism at which he and Miss Kale stood, and the subject was dropped. It's so funny because we just announced that we're going to be doing uh, um, Vertigo next year, which to me is one of Hitchcock's greatest films. Oh, I'm so fucking excited <laughs> for that, man. Yeah. <laughs> to go but back. Kale would not agree. It was at his decline. <laughs> What's funny about the Hitchcock. I actually was thinking about Hitchcock when I was watching Alphaville because one of my favorite scenes from this whole movie is the fight scene at the end. Um, it's in the garage. It's um, almost Godard films like in storyboards. You see, you know, let me caution getting the guy in a headlock. Then you see a shot of the guy's head under the wheel. Then there's a shot yeah. of let me caution behind the wheel. And then the car moves. And to me, that's 
the same way that Hitchcock did the shower scene in, in Psycho, um, except whereas Hitchcock was editing it in such a way that, you know, he made the illusion, you know, you thought you were seeing everything. Godard slows it down to make you aware of, of the artifice of editing. He makes you aware that you're not seeing any of this. Yeah, that was a really interesting scene. That scene, and then to kind of add on that, the whole idea of um, he and Natasha von Braun in the hotel room, and she looks down and sees the cops coming, and then they have a whole scene together uh, with them, and then the cops show up. So it's like kind of this like little bubble of time outside of time that they're in, because there's no way that the cops took that long to get from you know, the, the bottom to the top kind of thing. And it was just kind of nice that we're fragmenting time in such a way that, you know, I, I'm not thinking that they're actually in a bubble, but just that whole idea of like him playing with the form. But yeah, that whole, the fight scene that you're talking about is amazing, especially when he rolls over the guy's head. <laughs> yeah. Fave, fave, It's must still be one of my favorite fight scenes in, in, in all film history. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's a great way to kill someone, too. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we saw that on Toxic Avenger. So Yeah, see? Yeah. yeah. And if you want to know how to make a head squash, just listen to our friend Adam Spiegelman's uh, podcast, Proudly Resents, when he interviews Uncle Lloyd about uh, squashing a head. That's right. But see, you were talking about the influence of Alphaville here. When, uh, I guess maybe uh, Lloyd was influenced by Alphaville in terms of the uh, infamous head-crushing scene in The Toxic Avenger. But I can think of two films specifically that I think are uh, maybe one kind of related, but one the other one uh, maybe more directly. And the, the first one, uh, Colin, you had talked about before in the 50s, there were these um, computers in films and personification of computers and computers are going to rule the world kind of stuff and we have to deal with them. But for some reason, like Alpha 60 and HAL uh, in 2001 seem a little more direct. And now maybe that's just because it's that singular eye vision, that light or that um, you know camera lens in the case of HAL. And then the other one for me was obviously sort of a future noir Blade Runner and the idea of, um, you know, and, and at times I even did think, like you had said earlier, Mike, that uh, maybe these are not uh, seduction robots like Pris, but then again, maybe they are. Yeah, it's – and we know that with Blade Runner, you know, the, that whole uh, more human than human, the whole idea of the robots being better than the people, I can definitely see that as far as what Alphaville was kind of saying. And this whole idea, too, of the – you know the the use of futuristic soon to be uh, two years time. You know everybody's freaking out about uh, uh, Back to the Future Day. We've got like two years left, not even until 2017, and people are going to be visiting the off-world colonies, and we're going to have replicants running around all over the place. So, you know, but it was nice that something like you know we talked about the. Um, Okay, what's the name of the building that they use so often in uh, science fiction films? The Bradbury Building, and the use of the Bradbury in uh, Blade Runner was very nice. You know, they they you know they dressed it up a little bit and everything, but using that futuristic building to play the future was kind of a nice thing. You know, what I was sort of thinking about. Um, did you all see that movie Escape from Tomorrow? I mean, I I think it's a pretty wretched movie and i hated 
every second of watching it, but it, it, it seems. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. You know, we're talking about like if you look at Alphaville as a dystopic sci-fi film shot in the present in actual locations. That's the same premise of Escape from Tomorrow, but just done. I'm, I'm sorry, just, I really did not like it. I was on board for for a little bit, but it just went nowhere. Am I the only person that was thinking of, of Escape from Tomorrow? I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I can I can totally get that. I mean, there are some special effects in there, but the whole idea of basically shooting it run and gun at an actual location and trying to give it this flavor of weirdness, I can totally get that. That's very new wave. Did you like the movie, though? I haven't seen it yet. I thought it had its charms. I, I think... I think that it's more interesting to go, wow, they actually sh- shot this thing there and got away with it is more of a, um, is more interesting at times, you know, running that in your head as opposed to going, it's something that stands on its own. I kept thinking throughout the movie, like it's, you know, you see that, you know, the mother and the father and the two kids and the, you know, they start to separate and you start to see this real anger develop in the parents. And I'm like, yeah, it's like an Amityville horror. Like the parents just hate the kids. It's great. Um, kids are horrible. But then it didn't. Then there was actually some sort of like secret plot going on, and I didn't care about that. Just there wasn't much payoff to me. The other thing that I think is key in here um, in Alphaville of what he's trying to say, at least in terms of uh, the Alpha Sixty and all of that, is I was looking at it in terms of this is a time when you have the possibility of sort of that Dr. Strangelove kind of the computers are going to kill us all that, you know, we can basically annihilate everything on the planet. Technology's running amok. It's getting less and less human. It's getting more and more technological, the world in which we live in and sort of dealing with the anxiety of what that is all about. That's a lot of the things that they, that the movie predicts kind of have come true. Uh, you know, says, let me see if I can Yeah, I had written it down. People have become slaves of probability. He describes the, their government as a technocracy. And, uh, you know, I, I keep thinking about now that whether it's Netflix or Amazon, Facebook, Google, it has become, you know, you know just a constant equation. You know, we're, we're being shown stuff that, you know, some sort of computer thinks that we're going to want to know there's a high probability that we're going to want to see this movie, that we're going to want to buy this product. Yeah, this whole idea of predictive analytics are, is a little scary at times, but it is funny at the moment because of how wrong it can be. You know, like if you happen to look up something and then something tangentially related comes up in your Facebook feed or whatever. And it's just like, Whoa, where did this come from? And it takes you forever to try to figure it out. It's like when I buy presents for my wife and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you might also enjoy this, this, and this. And it's like, what the hell is going on here? (laughs) Yeah. My, my, my favorite one lately of predictive analytics is, um, and maybe it has to do with my last name, is I get pop-up, uh, I get rail ads in Facebook for feminine hygiene products. Now, uh, last time I checked, uh, my gender is not that. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out why it's asking me if I want to buy uh, tampons. Here's a, here's a question for you. Um, around the same time Godard was making Alphaville, Truffaut was doing his own sort of uh, dystopic movie about a world with 
we could just say of censorship, Fahrenheit 451. Do you know, I mean, yes. how would you compare those two movies? I feel very ashamed because I have yet to see Fahrenheit 451. I know that's bad. I tried watching it when I was working at Blockbuster like years and years ago. I just remember it looking absolutely stunning, but I've never actually gone back and watched the film. Yeah, I've seen it. Um, I think that was, what, 66? So it was about yeah. a year after. Yeah. Um, I think they're comparable in a way. I think it is, like I said, um, this sort of concern of technology and sort of technology run amok uh, in this era. So I, I really think that that's probably at the bottom of it. And then also the idea that the technology can also lead us to fascism quicker than fascism will lead you to fascism. Which, of course, these are the children of those who lived through the war. Yeah, that's a good point. It's interesting that the Cold War doesn't really play into too much of this. You know, it is a spy story and everything, but it's not necessarily a. I suppose you could consider what Alpha 60 is doing to be some sort of form of communism and that whole idea of making people into mindless zombies is some of the propaganda that we were being fed back then. But it doesn't seem to be as, you know, it, it, Lemmy does not seem to be representing, you know, good old fashioned American values. He, with his stoic look on his face, is almost as emotionless as the people that are in Alphaville. So it's not like he's, you know, Mr. Freedom coming in and, you know, singing jingoistic songs and, and bringing those frogs uh, democracy, you know, like they need to be taught and fighting Mujik Man and all this stuff. But uh, there's, it, it was, um, you know, you could have fallen into that trap fairly easily. For me, it's not necessarily about uh, national identity is so much about personal identity. True. And the idea that one can have a personal point of view or personal emotions as opposed to signing up with the groupthink. Another nice Orwellian term there, Rob. I do my best. Yeah, <laughs> good job. My hat's off to you. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Les films qui ont fait la gloire du cinéma français. Les Baffons de Jean Renoir. Quai des Brumes de Marcel Carnet. La Belle et la Bête de Jean Cocteau. Rendez-vous de juillet de Jacques Becker. Le journal d'un curé de campagne de Robert Bresson. Les Diaboliques d'Henri-Georges Clouseau. Et les Grandes Manœuvres de René Clair figurent au palmarès du prix Louis de Luc, la plus haute récompense du cinéma français. Cette année, les membres du jury du prix Louis de Luc Critiques et écrivains célèbres, réunis au cours d'un dîner au pavillon d'Armenonville, se sont mis d'accord au troisième tour de vote. Ils ont couronné un film à peine terminé, Ascenseur pour l'échafaud, d'un jeune cinéaste, Louis Mal, qui fut le co-réalisateur du merveilleux Monde du silence du commandant Cousteau. Voici Louis Mal, très ému, félicité par les membres du jury. Jeanne Moreau et Maurice René, principaux interprètes d'Ascenseur pour l'échafaud, viennent rejoindre leur metteur en scène. La direction de cette salle est heureuse de vous annoncer qu'elle a retenu en exclusivité pour son prochain spectacle Ascenseur pour l'échafaud. Mais on peut tout prendre comme alibi. Tout. Les femmes, les petites filles, les garçons de café, les amis d'enfance, les maris trompés. Mais pas les ascenseurs. Non, franchement, c'est idiot. Non, non, Louis T'occupe pas, monte Ça leur fera les pieds à ces sales 
Puis il faut brouiller les pistes. That's right, next week, November continues with the funny French accents again as we look at Louis Malle's Elevator to the Gallows. Don't miss it. Oh, that's a great fucking movie. And an amazing but, soundtrack. But before we run, want to thank our special guest this week, author David Stewart, for taking the time, and also our special guest co-host, the return of Colin Gallagher. Tell us now, sir, what's the latest with you? Oy vey. I'm still trying to play music, trying to, my band's on hiatus. Uh, I was in a hardcore band called Night Squad. Now I've, uh, it's trying to write some solo material and trying to finish up uh, a trilogy of Western novels that I would call the Scumbag Western Trilogy. Night Squad, was that a reference to David Goodis? Oh, of course it is. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> My second band named after a Goodis novel, or sort of. The other one was uh, Shoot the Piano Player, even though I realized Goodis's book was down there. Well, that's fine. It, it still works. And it goes back to one of my favorite Truffaut films, so that's fine. Anything else you want to add there, Colin? Pulpserenade.com. Uh, I got I to gotta, I gotta update that with some of the music, but that's where it's got all my writing. Uh, and uh, there will be more updates to come there as soon as I finish these fucking novels. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> Well, thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We hope you'll consider going over to our website, projection-boot.com, taking the time to leave us some feedback. Go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, donate some of your hard-earned cash to our Patreon, or just say hello. It's uh, just a few more of the ways that you can help us take over Alphaville and help free the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.